A humming sound fills our ears, part vocal, part deep breeze. The black nothingness before us gives way as a sea of ghostly shapes comes into focus. As our vision sharpens, so too does the humming, and we can now hear individual voices as the ghostly shapes become soft green silhouettes. The voices are impossible to make sense of. Thousands, perhaps millions, of unique tones and syllables, all murmuring together in a haunting melody. The silhouettes flip past us as we pull back, replaced evermore by new forms in an increasingly wider shot. When we pull back enough that we can no longer make out individuals, the spectacle takes on a new perspective, and we instead are looking at a current of shifting shades of soft greens and grays, each individual silhouette no more significant than a mere drop of water in a river. As the hums persist, and we watch this tranquil yet somber scene, words form before us. The river of souls, ethereal plain. Yes, each silhouette, each humming voice, but a single soul. No one soul at all significant past the masses, as they make their way out toward the astral plane, and then to the boneyard, where they will no doubt be judged and sent to their final reward. The words fade from the scene, and a new sound cuts through the hums. A terrible sound. It seizes dominion of our ears and burrows into the pits of our stomachs, like if nails on a chalkboard could scream. As we pull back in, bringing individual souls back into focus, it grows louder and louder, an unending note of distress, until we can see its source. A red glow bleeds into our field of vision before a sharp red silhouette is yanked into view. It appears to be another soul, but its crimson coloring is a stark contrast against the soft greens of the others. As the red soul gets closer to us, we can see what looks like a large, sinister hook made of solid light piercing through it. As we watch, the hook pulls the red soul against the current of humming souls, while the terrible sound of distress continues to ring out. The soul draws closer, rapidly growing larger in our field of vision, until it blocks out all else as it collides with us, and then... We now see Erasne, her face rendered a cold blue of undeath, yet still slender and beautiful, is inches from us. Her wide eyes dart side to side, fear and confusion quivering within. Slowly we pull back, watching from top down as Erasne lays on a large, extravagant bed covered in a soft, elegant blanket. She lays on her back with a look of bewilderment. Slowly she moves her hands to her face, exploring with touch every curve and angle as though searching for something. Her hands travel from her cheeks to her hairline, down her nose, and along her jawline. Finally, she reaches her neck, and her fingers find the surgical cut running down her sternum and into her blouse. Shock jerks her hands away. She lays in the bed for a silent minute. Then her trembling hands return to the cut, and she gingerly runs her fingers down the sinister wound embossed with stitching threads. With a growing dread, she follows the cut down 
beneath her neckline until she pulls away again in anguish. Confusion, fear, and sorrow grip Erasne's face as she curls herself into a tight ball of dry sobs and empty murmurs. As she writhes on the bed, our field of vision slowly drifts to the side until a silent onlooker comes into view. A dark-skinned man with long, flowing hair, dressed in fine, silken clothes, stands near a closed door. The man floats just a couple inches above the floor and is slightly transparent. He watches Erasne with glowing eyes of light and his mouth cocked in a satisfied smirk. As we take in this ghost of a man, we suddenly start to pick up the subtle yet ever-present odor of rot that we've come to know as the fragrance of Geb. Erasne seems to notice too, and comes out of her deep well of mourning enough to turn and behold the intruder. He remains silent as she takes several assertive breaths, pushing her sorrow down enough to address this new development. Finally, she sits up. You're Geb. The Ghost King remains silent, but gives a single nod of confirmation. What have you done to me? Geb's smirk sinks into a frown. Done to you? What I have done is to save you from oblivion. You should be on your knees thanking me. Razni jumps to her feet, clawing at her sternum, at the surgical cut concealing the empty cavity that is her body, now free of all organs and dignity. You violated me! You've damned me! Made me into a monster! Silence! Erasne immediately sits back down on her bed, tremors running through her entire body. With renewed confusion and fear, she looks down at herself, grappling with the reality that she had not obeyed Geb of her own accord. You should be more grateful. By my kind hand, you are no longer dead. I labored for 366 days to return your soul from the great beyond. I did not do so to be berated by the likes of you. Razni's face contorts in anger, and her mouth opens and closes in several attempts at a rage-fueled response. But the harsh words never leave her lips. Her anger dissipates as she realizes she can't. Geb's order for silence restrains her from the inside, holding her will down with a dark, perverted authority. The Ghost King's cocked grin returns to his face as he watches her struggle with her newfound compulsion. He glides toward her until the two are face to face. If you are to rule as my queen, you'll need better manners than that. Erasne's eyes widen with renewed anger, but she can do little more than seethe with restrained rage. A queen cannot rule her people if she can't speak. But I can't let you speak if you're going to spew foul lies about your king. I have to fix this little problem you've created for me. First, you may apologize. The two stare at each other. Erasne's condition for speaking, a low she refuses to sink to. Instead, she grits her teeth with newfound anger as she weaves signs of power with her hands. A moment later, she points a finger at the Ghost King, a finger glowing with the bright green energy of a disintegrate spell. 
point blank, there's little room to miss, and Erasne aims directly between Geb's eyes. But Geb merely frowns even harder at Erasne, who, after several seconds of tension, lowers her finger, unable to discharge the spell, confusion and fear returning to her face. I see now the Knights of Ozum have left you rageful and confused. You seek my destruction when it was they who doomed you to your own. Arasni continues to glare at Geb, but these words seem to stay with her, and we can see the seeds of resentment first taking root. Geb floats back to the door where he started, and while his back is turned, Arasni seems to consider the truth to this last statement. Geb turns back to her. Running my kingdom has become dangerously dull. Finding challenging projects has been the only thing keeping me from going mad for many years now. My latest project was hunting down your soul in the great beyond and bringing you back here. Before that, it was correcting seven self-righteous knights who invaded my kingdom without provocation. My next project will be correcting you, so I can leave my kingdom attended by its new queen and be able to fully commit myself to more important projects." Rasni gawks in silence as she fathoms the monumental effort put into the task of appointing a head of state, and she realizes the immeasurable patience, cunning, and most of all, pettiness of the Ghost King. Your correction begins now. Many years pass. In those years, we catch snippets of the imprisonment endured by Erasne. Her isolation, her torment by Geb, and when he couldn't be bothered, her torment by one of his corrected knights, the Grave Knights who stole her corpse from Vigil, who call themselves the Council Libertine. Hold the line. Arasni discovers with much disdain that her psychological conditioning was not exclusive to the Ghost King. Any command uttered by one of the Grave Knights, Arasni was forced to obey. Though her power exceeded theirs, even as a full group, she was unable to raise a hand against them. She couldn't even raise her voice. Hold the line. The seeds of resentment planted by Geb made deep roots. And though slow to grow, she would eventually come to blame everything on the Knights of Ozum, Aridin, and Roslar. It was his binding of her that started everything, and it was the Knight's arrogance in attacking Geb that sealed her fate, and it was Aridin's continued absence that kept her imprisoned. We watch her attempt to flee the nation of Geb several times. No matter how far she makes it, as soon as the Council Libertine finds her, a single command to return to her throne is all that's needed to end the bid for freedom. With no other options, she eventually turns to her own destruction, bathing herself with positive energy until her body bursts apart. Within several days, though, her phylactery returns her fully to undeath. Utilizing every form of divination magic she can muster, doling out bribes, blackmails, threats, and promises of every terrible shade. Her phylactery is never found in whatever hiding place Geb placed it. 
a lifetime of exploring every option imaginable, and no escapes can be found. Hold the line. With each passing year, her already meager hope that Aridin might rescue her from this terrible fate faded more and more. She finally succumbed to Geb's demands and apologized for her arrogance, an apology she was forced to sell with infinitely more passion than she was initially prepared for, as Geb demanded an apology with interest for the time she spent in defiance of his kindness. She slowly learned the value of abandoning her pride in Geb's presence, playing the part of his doting queen, lest he decide she needs reminding of how grateful she ought to be. Such reminders were never over quickly, and were always humiliating. Hold the line. She would eventually abandon her own beliefs, values, and passions in order to fit the role that was required of her. Her only comfort during this time was a quiet voice in the back of her mind. A voice only she could hear. It belonged to her murderer, Tarbafan, and it raged at his own imprisonment. Through her own divinations, Arasni eventually pieced together the history of the Shining Crusade that she missed after her death. She clung to the consolation that the Whispering Tyrant did not win his war, and now found himself helpless despite all his powers. Though she didn't fully understand this psychic connection she shared with him, she cherished it like a precious secret. With her every day spent hardening herself against her jailers, and her only solace the pleasure of another's suffering, it would inevitably follow that Erasne became cold, cruel, apathetic. She came to welcome the task of running the undead nation of Geb, a role she excelled at with a dispassionate efficiency that matched its citizens. The quagmire of politics became a welcome distraction from her reality as a non-consenting lich and a prisoner. We slow time back down and see Arasni attending to one such duty, and we find her sitting in a large stone hall, a royal court within Mechatar. Arasni lounges on her throne while various undead chatter from their own seats. It appears to be some sort of judicial hearing, and we see vampires, ghouls, and other undead speak in their gravelly voices on what seems to be rather dull issues of state. Arasni appears very bored, but remains attentive. The hearing is very suddenly and violently interrupted by a flash of white light. The light originates in the center of the hall and slices through the air until it fills the entire chamber. When the light ebbs, we see that all the undead have either been slain or else completely annihilated, turned to ash. All undead, except for Erasne, who sits up straight in her throne, appearing unharmed, her face still shielded from the sudden blinding light. A new person can be seen, though. An armored knight, carrying a nimbus of light, similar to the one that slew Erasne's congress. As our eyes adjust, we see a beautiful woman with short, dark hair and a longsword sheathed at her hip. Erasne rubs the discomfort out of her eyes as the woman removes her helmet, and we can see former general of the Shining Crusade, Ayamade. She stands in the center of the hall, looking up at Erasne with tremendous sadness. Erasne... Erasne seems to study Ayamade for several beats. You're Ayamade. 
You were one of my most promising followers. She looks around at her slaughtered council. You just destroyed 70 hours worth of transcription. What do you want? Ayamide takes a breath, attempting to conquer her sadness. I had to see for myself that you were here. Razni looks around again at the slaughtered undead council. And you just couldn't help yourself, I suppose. You thought a flashy slaughter would impress me? I wanted to help you. <laughs> oh, by the light of the sword, must you be my rescuer? Ayamide's sadness hardens, and she now looks at Arasni with a mixture of confusion and affront. Yes, I know all about you, Lady Valor. My own replacement, when Aridin couldn't be bothered to clean up the mess he refused to acknowledge. The next sacrificial lamb for the Knights of Ozem. Though lucky you, they haven't yet found a beast worthy of baiting their new goddess just yet. Ayamide bows her head. Though her offense at these words is clear, she closes her eyes in temperance, as if weathering this beating were a form of repentance, a means of acknowledgement to the hardships endured by Arasni. I'm so sorry. If she was expecting Arasni to be impressed, or even satisfied, with her temperament, though, Ayamade was mistaken. As Arasni rises out of her throne like a mace swung overhead and stabs an accusing finger as she glares down at her. Do not tell me you're sorry. Do not dare to come before me after centuries of indifference for my fate and apologize like a child. You who rose to divinity nearly 800 years ago and chose to do nothing. It wasn't my place. Ayamade takes a desperate step forward, genuine guilt and sorrow contorting her deifically perfect face. Aridin would not let me interfere. I wanted to, Arasni. I wanted to help you. Arasni's glare curdles into a sneer. Ah, so you finally found the courage to go behind his back? Or is this a form of protest? Am I to be ammunition in the squabbling of a god and his herald? Aridin is dead. A tear crawls down Iomide's cheek, joining the stark silence of the chamber as Arasni, for the first time, is speechless. I wanted you to hear it from me. Instead of... instead of from someone else. And I wanted to offer you... No. Ayamide shakes her head in disbelief. What? You can keep whatever offer you assumed would bring me to my knees in gratitude. I'll have none of it. Arasni, please. I only wanted... To... to help me? Do you really presume to know what's best for me? Am I to leave my fate in your good hands? Just as I did with Aridin? With the Knights of Ozum? A moment passes as Ayamide stares in bewilderment at the Lich. She spreads her arms, gesturing desperately at the chamber at large. Would you really rather stay here? With Geb? With these... monsters? Geb and all his nation can rot for all I care! You can rot! Aridin can rot! You can all go rot! Now leave me alone! We skip ahead in time again watching Arasni grow ever colder in her imprisonment. With the news of Aridin's death and her spurning of Ayamide, she had officially relinquished the last of her pathetic dreams of freedom. Through the motions of governing, through the strong-arming and belittling of the Council Libertine, through the performance she maintained around her husband Geb, degrading herself to appease his archaic sensibilities, 
She had exactly one joy, one escape. Tarbafon's rage had ebbed over the centuries, but his outbursts remained inevitable. A wonderful little treat for her to savor in her mind, where no one else could find it. But then, one day, the Whispering Tyrant's outburst came not as anger, but as joy. If Erasne were biologically capable of gagging, she may have vomited. No. No, this could not happen. How could this last sliver of happiness, this one and only consolation in her eternal misery, also be taken away? She refused. For the next couple years, any chance she had, Erasne studied carefully any information she could glean from her psychic connection with Tarbafon. Though it made her very essence quake with anger, she silently waited, listened, watched for something, anything, that might indicate what had changed in the tyrant's disposition. When she finally saw in her mind's eye a clue, it was twofold. A name and a place. The name was Gildaeus, a subordinate of Tarbafon's she knew to be trapped in Galaspire with him. The place, though, was the last thing she had expected. Of all places, a small border town. Of all small border towns. Roslar's Coffer. It was never hard to escape the city, even the nation itself. It was merely inevitable that the Council Libertine would discover her absence, and then inevitable that they would find her and send her home. It was therefore with great haste that Erasne made her way to Last Wall before her absence might be noticed. And we find ourselves with a distant yet familiar sight, the massive cemetery at the southeast corner of Roslar's Coffer. Erasne, unsure what in the world could possibly warrant Tarbafon's notice in this place, paces between the gravestones. Some so old that the occupants had once worshipped her before her own death. The simple mayor of this simple town knew nothing about Gildaeus, though she was unsurprised to learn so. Preferring to not cause a panic with her presence quite yet, Erasne now skulks the fringes of the town, hoping to stumble upon a clue. She comes to a halt at the entrance to Roslar's tomb. He was in there, Roslar. Well, presumably, anyway. The man who cast the first stone, who set her on this path of misery. Perhaps she could revive him. His soul had surely found its final reward in the great beyond as a petitioner by now. It would be no easy task, though Geb had retrieved her soul, and here was just a mortal man. Surely she could replicate his accomplishment with enough time. A smile creeps into her face as she begins to imagine the things she would do to Roslar. She could probably hide him from Geb, for a very, very long time if she was careful. An eternity of enslavement may not seem so bad if she could secret herself away to his hiding place every so often and listen to his screams for mercy. I I'm warning you now, if you're trying to scare me, well, let's not do anything stupid in the dark, okay? I'm, I'm armed. The sound of steel pulled free from its sheath snaps Erasne out of her deep, dark thoughts. She turns around to face the source and beholds a man, an unassuming man, holding a lantern high in one hand and a longsword in the other. She holds him in her gaze, finding some subconscious satisfaction in his terror at her palpable presence. 
He wasn't a threat. Probably just a groundskeeper or other hired hand. Still, she had been so distracted by fantasizing about Roslar that she hadn't even noticed his approach. If he had been one of the Council of Libertine, she would have been forced to return to Geb with but a single command. She silently berates herself for being so sloppy. While the cowed man continues to stammer and squirm, Erasne pushes Roslar out of her mind and refocuses on the task at hand. And that's when she feels it. Some kind of magical echo vibrating in her head, like an elastic band. It rings out, then goes quiet, then rings out again, louder each time. The pattern repeated and magnified quickly, so quickly it had been only moments after Erasne noticed it before it was like a thunderous drum in her head. Razni has no idea what could be making this signal, but she is sure of its origin. Razni turns her head back to the town of Roslar's coffer, and through her heightened senses can see a thrumming green light flickering and growing in concert with the echo in her head. Before she can do anything else, though, the light turns solid and ignites the air, annihilating Roslar's coffer and Razni with it. For five long days, Arasni waited to reform, a process she had endured several times before after her own self-destruction, either as a form of protest or during her formative years when she still foolishly believed it could have been a way out of her imprisonment. It had been several centuries since the last time, and while she still remembered it being an uncomfortable process, the pain she experienced now was new. She spent her time reforming, pondering, the very strange magical blast at Rosar's coffer. It was over so quickly she had no way to analyze its power or effects. One thing she knew for sure, the laughter she heard in her head from Tarbafon had gotten worse. There was no doubt in her mind that he was responsible for the blast, and that he was pleased with the results. Both of these thoughts were deeply upsetting, but even more so, Razni found herself worrying. The possibility that Tarbafon could be working on a plan to escape from his prison, and that the plan was progressing, made her feel weak with apprehension. After five days, we see Razni again fully formed, standing at the foot of the bed she first awoke in after being made a lich. She rolls her neck, tenderly rubs her elbows, and looks around the room, perhaps hoping in vain that she would suddenly, miraculously, be made aware of the presence of her phylactery. Of course, it's nowhere in sight, and she shakes her head in frustration of such a silly thought. After her extended absence, Arasni knows she must at the very least make herself seen in Geb, so as to not stir up suspicion. She would also need to take some time to prepare for another outing, as all of her equipment was left at Roslar's coffer when she was destroyed, if it wasn't itself also destroyed. Twenty-four hours later, though, we see her appear again in the woods surrounding Roslar's coffer with a teleport spell. She looks up, and we look with her at the massive yellow dome of fog enclosing the town. Arasni decides to do her investigating from outside the town limits this time, starting with identifying the fog, after some trial and error as being created by a fettering maw, one of Tarbafon's own inventions. The Whispering Tyrant was still trapped in Gallowspire, she knew that much, 
which meant that this was likely being used by the Whispering Way. We watch as Arasni spends several days observing the cult's movements with her divination magic. She also studies in great detail the damage done to this area. The blast that destroyed her seemed to have annihilated the entire town and everyone inside. The sheer power of such magic is unlike anything Arasni had ever known. She begrudgingly admits to herself that Tarbaphon's weapon had blurred the line between mortal magic, even that most mythically powerful rung, and that of the gods. The fact that he had targeted this insignificant town was even more troubling, as it meant he had merely used it as a test, and was planning to, and capable of, using it again. Eventually, she discovers with her divinations the presence of several others within the dome, people who don't seem to be with the Whispering Way. A dwarf, a changeling, two humans, and a half-orc. She recognizes one of the humans as the groundskeeper who had threatened her before the blast went off. How was he here? Did he somehow survive? She begins watching more closely, and that night, she sends a scrying sensor into their camp. She watches with amusement as the human and his elk mount gawk at the sensor after noticing it, not knowing what they were looking at. She uses this opportunity to use more precise divinations through the sensor, and beholds a very peculiar sliver of light over his heart. Everyone in the clearing had the same sliver. Well, everyone except the elk and the half-orc. The slivers seemed to be constructs of both positive and negative energy, a union that defies the very laws of nature. Erasni continues to watch these strangers as they explore the ruined town and fight their way through several groups of cultists. The more she watched, the more she found herself invested in their struggles. Still quite green in experience, but they had much potential, and the slivers in their hearts spoke of a shared destiny, a marking of greatness. She realized that they could help her. It was clear that Gildeus wasn't here. If Tarbafon was to use his weapon again, Erasni could think of worse targets than Vigil. Even if he had other plans, alerting Last Wall would only serve to put more opposition in front of him. But the thought of going to the Knights of Ozum, disguised or not, and beseeching them for help was infuriating. But these survivors in the dome, they could go there for her. They could alert the Knights of Ozum and search for clues of Gildeus while she continued to lay low. We watch as Erasni gathers supplies in preparation to play the part of the mysterious benefactor. She speaks with the survivors after they lift the fog. She watches them ride off to Vigil. She explores the empty town. She awakens the lost and confused elk. Its owner perished in the trek to remove the fog. And then she hears it. Find her. The voice of Emeritus fills her head as one of her magical wards triggers. For this particular ward, the Council Libertine would have to be less than a mile from her. In her fascination with the survivors, Erasne realizes she lost track of her jailers. Now they were nearly upon her, and she had almost missed them entirely. 
Perhaps they caught wind of the destruction of the town, or maybe the Whispering Way's movements and guessed at her proximity. Or perhaps they were divining her location more directly, without knowing for sure. Erasni knows she can't risk remaining out in the open while she waits for her new agents to finish their business in Vigil. She would need somewhere she could lay low in, long term. Somewhere without any obvious historical or personal connection for the Council Libertine to ascertain, and somewhere that magical divinations couldn't penetrate, but still somewhere close enough for her to keep developing matters under her thumb. A seemingly impossible combination of factors, yet one place stands out in her mind. She places a hand on the elk, now realizing how short-sighted she had been in granting its sentience. She had created a witness, a liability, and now she would have to keep it close or risk losing everything if the Council Libertine found it. She casts a spell and teleports the two of them away from Roslar's coffer. We follow her teleport and arrive at Nadiri's Bastion, the same squat fortress of Mott and Bailey in which the PCs are fated to later learn her true identity. The poor old tower keeper hollers and panics at her entrance, but with a single spell, Arasni charms the man into compliance. Thereafter, he treats her with respect and kinship, which she utilizes mostly to request solitude in the tower's cellar. The elk, who claims to be named Elksy, spends most of its time patrolling the wilderness around the tower, most likely, Arasni suspects, pondering its regained sentience and how it fits into the world. And then, Erasne has little to do, but wait. She spends a lot of time thinking about Tarbafon's new weapon. His continued joy scratching the back of her mind could only mean his plans were advancing still, but what exactly it was, or how it worked, was still a mystery. Still, the undeniable potency of it intrigued her. She couldn't yet explain why, but she felt that there was something she was missing. Some answer to a long-forgotten question. Her revivification after being torn apart, it hurt. It was pain unlike that of an undead existence could experience. Pain she hadn't felt since being alive. Like the weapon had damaged her very soul. And then, it hit her. This was the answer. As the day stretched on, we watch Erasne diligently working in the tower's cellar. She fills page after page of notes, blending arcane and scientific theories. She constructs glyphs and tinkers at the threads of reality with her powerful magics in increasingly complex experiments. Though the theory and principles are beyond our grasp, we can vaguely understand the string of failures and dead ends her work yields. Instead of frustrated, though, she only seems to grow more determined as she dives ever more into a new avenue of arcane science. It rekindled in her a passion she had long forgotten from untold lifetimes ago, in her days as a mortal woman, before Tarbafon, before her tenure as a demigoddess, when she first met Aridin, the both of them still thirsty for knowledge and power. The day arrives that Vigil is destroyed. Erasne pauses in her work long enough to assess the situation. Her agents miraculously survived, but were now struggling for their lives as they fought to save as many people as possible. Normally, she might have been annoyed that their actions were endangering the mission. After all, if they died trying to save some nameless city folk, they were no use to her. 
Maybe it was the nostalgia her work had created, but she instead found herself unusually invested in their success. She continues to work on her research and experiments, as well as utilize powerful divinations to learn more about Tarbefon's weapon with his attack on Vigil. She eventually reaches out again as her agents draw closer, having succeeded in saving far more than she would have ever expected. Though quite impressed and even proud, she knew such sentiments wouldn't aid her in the coming negotiations. She meets with them and sends them on the next leg of their adventure. And then she dives again into her work. It's unclear how much time has passed since sending her agents away, but as we check back in, the cellar has transformed into what could be mistaken for a greenhouse. Plants of various species sprout from the dirt floor, some blooming with beautiful flowers, others creeping up the cellar wall, and others still hugging the ground with thick tangles of thorns. There's a clear organization to the placement of different plants, and as we watch, Erasne places a hand over a particularly bulbous flower. Her hand glows with a soft green light, and we can hear the stretching of fabric as the flower stem strengthens and grows though it's clear that most of the plant's growth is happening underground, as Erasne's eyes dart this way and that in concentration, as though the roots were an extension of her own body and she were using them to search for something. More time passes, and the cellar now glows with brilliant bioluminescence, as the plant life has evolved even further than before. The smell of fertile soil and sweet pollen has replaced the musky mixture of mold and spices almost entirely. Erasne sits at a small writing desk, scribbling into a notebook. Undead do not tire, and yet it's clear that her constant work has drawn on her. Still, she writes. There's a knock on the door. Erasne instantly recognizes the rhythm and frequency as belonging to Malachi, the still-charmed tower keeper. Enter. The old steps creak as Malachi makes his way down in the slow, careful way that he moves. He reaches the landing and smiles at her. I brought you more candles, Erasne. She responds without looking up from her work. Thank you. And I thought you might like a cup of tea. I told you, I don't drink tea. <laughs> and, and I told you, everyone drinks tea. Very well. Leave it on the table. Malachi admires the beautiful lights spilling from the magical plant life as he approaches Erasne's desk and places a cup of cinnamon peach tea on an unused corner, as well as a box of fresh candles on the floor. Steam swims lazily through the heavy air from her tea, mixing with the sweet, earthy aromas. So beautiful, Erasne. Does this mean you succeeded? You conquered the ley line? Erasne looks up for the first time, a sharp correction ready behind her lips, but she sighs with a tired smile. A gross oversimplification, Malachi, but yes, in principle, I have conquered the ley line. Oh, splendid! I knew you could do it! There's an awkward moment of silence as Malachi awaits a response from Erasne, who merely smiles vaguely before returning to her work. The old man doesn't seem offended, though. He watches her work for another moment, smiling. So, what's that you're working on now? 
Erasne puts her pen down with a sigh before looking back up at Malachi. I'm not sure you would understand it. <laughs> oh, you're probably right. Just like with your last project with the ley line, I didn't understand a half of it. But I do love listening to your fancy words of magic and science. I'd love to listen some more. Another moment of silence. Very well. Razni stands up and adjusts her traveling cloak, revealing to Malachi the presence of more plants, vines that coil their way up her leg, around her waist, and seem to burrow inside her flesh at the small of her back. Malachi jumps in surprise. Gracious! Arasni, it's inside of you! She drops her cloak, hiding the uncomfortable sight. And at the other end, it's inside of the ley line. With this, I am physically connected with it. Does it hurt? Arasni thinks for a moment before a small smile peeks through her dour face. Yes, a little. So what does this uh, do? I'll spare you the finer points of my theory and methods, but the macro of it all is that I'm changing my metaphysical makeup to maximize the reception of both potential and atrophy. Malachi clearly doesn't understand, but smiles politely. Erasne takes in his ignorance for a moment before clarifying. If my theory and calculations are correct, it will amplify the radiant fire's effects on me tenfold. Malachi shakes his head confused. Uh, sorry, do you mean to say you'll be better protected from it? Quite the opposite. When I was destroyed by it at Roslar's coffer, it didn't just annihilate my body, it scorched my very soul. The same soul that's been hidden from me in the phylactery by Geb for centuries. When next I confront Tarbaphon, I will goad him into using it again. This time, hopefully the damage on me will be so great that it will destroy my very soul, severing its connection with my phylactery and freeing me from Geb's hold. Malachi stammers and squirms for a moment. Oh, um, and then you'll be able to come back and defeat the Whispering Tyrant then. Razni sits back down and resumes writing. It's not impossible that I could be severed from Geb and still be able to regenerate, but more likely... I will cease to exist entirely. But you'll kill yourself? But why? She puts her pen down again. Her body language suggests anger at having to stop again, but her face, with wide eyes and grin, is almost manic with excitement. Because I can. This is a level of agency I've not had over my own existence in over 900 years. If such autonomy is merely my own oblivion, <laughs> I don't care. The misery will at long last be at an end, and it will be resolved by my own hand. But Arasne, you told your friends that you are helping them defeat the Whispering Tyrant. They're not my friends, Malachi. You lied to them. You sent them to the most dangerous place on all of Galarian so, so that you could just blow yourself up? Do not. Lecture me. I don't need to justify myself to you. You wouldn't even try to defeat him, Tarbafon, to help the entire world? To what end? Defeating him won't stop him. He will merely return to his phylactery, which is as well hidden as my own, if not more so. Maybe I can manage to find it, and maybe I can do so before he regenerates, and maybe I can get there in time to destroy it. Or maybe I'll have to defeat him all over again first. But then what? 
I'm to cower in hiding from Geb and the Council Libertine for the rest of my pathetic existence? They would find me, they would corner me, and I would be forced to return. No, this is not my responsibility. But they are. And Malachi marches back up the stairs, leaving Arasne without a retort as steam from her cinnamon peach tea continues to waft through the heavy air. Because she knew. He was right. More time passes, and while Arasne continues to work, she finds herself spending more time keeping tabs on her agents. Though she was worried at first that Uhtred would discover the properties of surveillance hidden in Soulminder, the parry of Tinau War, he seemed to abandon his initial skepticism fairly quickly. Through Soulminder, she watched their long, grueling trek to Gallowspire and their expedition therein. She watched as they clashed with countless foes within, discovering the debilitating squeeze Gallowspire held over all healing magic, forcing their progress to a mere crawl. Every scratch, every bit of damage taken within those damned halls, ringing twice as loud with their magical healing stemmed as it was. And yet they persevered, pushing themselves to their absolute limits each day before resting in whatever hiding place they could find, slowly clearing their path deeper underground. As she had when witnessing their escape from Vigil, and before that, Rosar's coffer, Razni can't help but grow ever more invested in their efforts. The greater the adversity grew, the more she craved their victory. Malachi's reprimand of her plans did not grow silent in her mind as she assumed it would. No. As she tracked her agent's progress, she realized that she was growing conflicted. Freedom was what she desired more than anything. And yet, she became more sure with each passing day, leaving them to fight a foe they could not hope to defeat, especially when led there by her hands, was an outcome she also could not allow. Could she have both? Could she defeat Tarbafon? and still find a way to break her chains? It didn't seem likely, but if she could only have one, which would she choose? Which would she hate herself more for abandoning? The answer came to her as she witnessed their most grueling fight yet, pinned against a powerful Galodad, and Taika Guzmar, one of the Council Libertine, no doubt searching Gallowspire for her accompanied by several of his flesh hunters, Geb's merciless seeker police. Tyka felled one of her agents, the one known as Randolph, with a telling swing of his sword, separating head from shoulders. It was a brutal fight, but the undead were eventually defeated, and her agents forced to retreat and rest yet again. But then, early the next morning, she witnessed something impossible something even she was forced to label as a miracle. Randolph returned to life. No holy magic was used, no deific intervention. It was as if by sheer force of will, Randolph had pulled himself back together and stood back up, ready to throw himself again at the hordes of opposition within Gallowspire. Aridin, Iomade, the Knights of Ozum, she could do better, had to do better than them. 
where they failed, faltered, abandoned, she would not. She would see this through to the best of her abilities. She would try to destroy Tarbafan, even if doing so would imprison her in Geb for another thousand years. She would do it for these mortals, who were giving everything they had, and more, to give her a mere chance to defeat him. The next day, we see Arasni working, but this work is different. No longer is she conducting experiments, nurturing plants, or taking notes. This work is preparation for battle. Material components for powerful spells are laid out in an organized manner, as well as potions, scrolls, and other magical tools. She affixes a magical rod to her belt, slips a wand of bone up her sleeve, affixing it to a clip on her bracelet, and stores a gnarled wooden staff on a holster behind her back. She begins to ration diamond dust and even amounts into a number of small glass vials when a powerful gust of wind explodes through the air behind her, followed by an angry, ghostly wail and a large, blown-up image of the wizard king Geb appears. Though we can see enough of his face to see that he is outraged, his eyes seem to be blocked by an opaque layer of force. One of Arasni's anti-scrying measures, preventing Geb from seeing her, despite projecting himself to her location. Arasni! Hello, darling. Where are you? In what miserable hole do you hide from your duties? Arasni turns to look at Geb, placing an innocently surprised hand on her chest. Am I still missing? Surely my loyal bodyguards should have found me by now. The giant image of Geb bears his ghostly teeth. Your negligence has brought disruption to no less than six districts. But it ends now. I found you myself. I thought I was missing. I see I need to retrain that mouth of yours as well. I may be unable to see you, but you hear my words as clear as if I was standing next to you. Arasni, you are to put an end to this little tryst of yours. Return to your throne where you will await punishment for your actions. No. The word leaves Arasni's lips, but she doesn't dare believe it. She stands as still as a statue, eyes wide and mouth agape, with the impossibility... Even Geb hesitates. What did you say? Erasne composes herself, her shock replaced with cautious elation. I said, no. I have a job to do, and I'm going to do it. Return to your throne at once! Geb, darling. Fuck you. And with a wave of her hand... The enraged image of Geb is banished from the cellar. The natural lighting of the bioluminescence flickers with Geb's departure, and Arasni stands there, alone, in silence, unsure if she dared believe it. She had refused a direct order from Geb. It was impossible. Yet here she stood, with no compulsion whatsoever to obey. Her entire body begins to shake, 
and her face contorts in rage. Before she can restrain herself, her emotional meter cracks. Everything she had endured, everything she had held back, every single expletive she'd silenced, centuries of it, the numbness all washed away. Erasne releases a roar of emotion, of anger and sadness, of fear, frustration, and defiance. She loses herself in it. Finally, the cellar is silent again. Erasne looks around, and a new world, one that does not control her, but exists with her, where she can do as she pleases. She jerks her head back to the desk, holding her reagents for battle. Could it be that a concept as juvenile as sentiment had freed her? But was she truly free, though? Or was this merely a one-time event? Could Geb or the Council Libertine ensnare her again in person? Her old friend, Paranoia, had returned to the moment. But temporary freedom or not, she knew what she had to do next. We cut again and find ourselves in the cold, windy hills surrounding the fortress monastery of Renchurch. We're in the final moments of Erasne's goodbye and watch her float away from her allies. But this time, when she stops, we have a new point of view, and we can see her looking down at the massive army of undead with anxiety in her eyes. Down there was Tarbafan, her murderer. After nearly a millennia, it was time to settle the score. She wasn't being forced this time. This time, she would fight because she chose to. She still wasn't sure if she could win. She could just leave. She could teleport away, find a new secluded place far from Geb, Lastwaller, anyone who knew the name Arasni, and ensure no one would ever find her again. She could choose to do so, but it was the existence of that choice that held her firm. She was no longer a prisoner, no longer a victim. She was a crusader. She was unyielding. A small smile warms her pale face as she gazes down upon her destiny. Thank you. And she leaves her friends to their mission. She climbs through the air, higher and higher. The cold Verlich winds would be unbearable at these heights, but Arasni feels nothing but the warm churn of battle brewing in her chest. She continues to climb until Tarbafan's army is but a sea of shapes and colors. Over a thousand feet above the ground, she was higher than any wards that would alert Tarbafan or any of his mages of her approach. She closes her eyes and searches for the cackling, mocking laughter that had haunted her for the last two years. He was somewhere in that sea of bodies, fancying himself, as always, invincible. It would be his undoing. There, in the middle front of his army, she knew he was there, even if distance and obscurity hid him from view. He was well protected, surrounded by fast and powerful minions. A devilish grin parts Erasne's face. Time to say hello. She reaches deep, deep within the well of arcane power at her disposal, where powerful magics only the upper echelons of mages can reach. 
she reaches deeper still, past the most extreme limits of practice, study, and talent, and grabs hold of power seldom seen by mortals. A power wielded by her enemy Tarbafan and her tormentor Geb, but shared by her, now with the will to fight back. Magical glyphs form around her head as she weaves signs with her hands and speaks words of power. Four red-hot spheres the size of large cannonballs appear, orbiting her raised right hand as it flexes with the strain of control, and in her left, at the tip of her outstretched index finger, a pea-sized ball of white light vibrates and flickers with hardly restrained energy. She looks down, takes aim, and hurls all four red spheres at the battlefield with one great sweeping motion of her right arm. They careen downward, intertwining in a beautiful spiral as they descend before spreading out equidistance from each other, collide with the ground, and then rapidly expand as they explode, each ball consuming an enormous area spaced out just enough to all intersect at the very center, an area over a hundred feet across all told, even as the four balls explode in a devastating blast of fire, the tiny bead of white light is fired from the tip of Razni's finger with incredible velocity. It disappears inside the explosion at the intersecting center, and the ground shakes as the white light explodes in turn, blossoming out from within the deep red flames in a blinding riot of molten air, singeing the very fabric of the scene with ripples through our vision of Arasni's mythic meteor swarm spell coupled with her quickened, mythic, augmented fireball spell. The heat blasts upwards, pushing the air away from the blast zone as Arasni plummets to the ground, head first, her hair pulled back by drag. As spectacular as it was, her destructive assault had already faded away, the only remaining evidence being the over 100-foot-wide swath of scorched earth and incinerated bodies. The massive army remains largely untouched, but Arasni is pleased to see very few undead remain in the aftermath of her spells, and the ones that do still stand only dot the outer ring, except one. Standing in the exact center of the blast zone, looking up at her descent, is a singular horned figure. Tarbafon's robes tussle in the scorching wind as he scowls up at Arasni. As she gets within earshot, his scowl curls into a grin as he opens his mouth to speak, but Arasni isn't in the mood to exchange pleasantries. She touches down onto the sizzling rubble and immediately pivots, now speeding directly at the whispering tyrant, skimming just inches over the ground with her magical flight. Tarbafan has just enough time to react and flies straight up, avoiding Arasni's next spell, a shimmering prismatic cone of lights. The spell misses Tarbafan, but at the end of its far reach, multiple undead at the fringe of the blast zone are engulfed in the colors, and we watch as a wide swath of the Whispering Tyrant's minions erupt in wild gouts of different energies. Some are turned into stone, and more still simply vanish, pulled through space into another existence. Erasni grins at the effective discovery attack, but even more so at Tarbafan doing exactly as she had wanted. Had she confronted him on the ground, the surviving masses would have converged on her in moments. 
Now, though, she has chased him out of reach of most of his reinforcements. But it wouldn't be so easy. As Erasny pivots yet again to fly straight up to follow him, a tidy bead of light skims just past her nose. She has only enough time to realize what it is. Tarbafon's return fire. No way to avoid it. Erasny braces herself as Tarbafon's own mythic fireball explodes right beneath her, sending the loosened rubble below, sailing this way and that. She can feel the terrible heat stab her entire body, but she pushes on, climbing above the explosion. Tarbafon is waiting, and after the explosive opening and ensuing skirmish, the two take a moment, staring each other down as the two unimaginably powerful undead mages float a hundred feet over the sea of soldiers. Tarbafon waves a hand matter-of-factly at their surroundings. Well, I must say, I never thought I'd see you here, Erasni. Shouldn't you be collecting taxes? Or settling a housing dispute? His skeletal face stretches in a taunting grin. Erasni glares at the smug brat floating before her. Shouldn't you be grounded? He sneers at her. My extended captivity was but a minor setback. As always, I prevailed better than ever. Your uncouth interruption here, though inconvenient, is merely another minor setback. After I dominate you for a second time, I'll have to parley with Geb and demand he keep a tighter leash on his bride. Oh, he's aware of the leash problem. And Erasni reaches again deep into the well of mythic arcane magics within her. She extends her hands out toward Tarbafon, fingers spread wide, and from each finger launches a small, bright red bolt of energy. Ten bolts twist and spiral through the air for a moment before locking onto their target and careening straight at him. Tarbafon responds with his own spell and produces much the same effect, and Erasni's red bolts are intercepted and neutralized with his black ones. Without pausing, he then casts a new spell, and from his outstretched index fingers fire two green beams of crackling energy. Erasni draws her rapier, with one hand on the hilt and the other bracing against the flat of the blade. She catches the first beam along the length of steel, deflecting it off to the side, where it slices through a nearby cliff edge, freeing several tons of rock from the side of the mountain as it plummets down in an explosion of dirt and boulders. She can't deflect the second beam, though, which strikes her directly in the shoulder. Erasni staggers back from the damage, but her resilient body remains intact. She prepares for another volley, and we watch as the two spellcasters unleash arcane devastation upon one another, releasing unthinkably powerful spells that get absorbed, redirected, or countered by the other. The sky above Renchurch begins to glow from the magical fallout as the two liches aim to overpower and outmaneuver the other. Glyphs of light flare and twirl. Space itself is displaced from rapid teleportations for tactical repositioning, and the landscape surrounding the battlefield explodes in collateral damage from each parried spell. The back and forth finally ends when Tarbafon sends Erasni plummeting to the ground with an intense downward blast of air. Erasni lands on one knee, but before she can straighten up, she's swarmed by Tarbafon's army. She springs up to two feet, narrowly avoiding a sword swing from an impressively armored morgue. 
With a twirl, she steps around the sweeping claws of an enormous demon and skewers her rapier through the eye socket of an albino ghoul. Almost as if time had slowed down, we watch her duck and dance her way through this forest of onslaught. Steel, bone, and claw twist and scramble around her, but Arasni, like a drop of oil in water, turns them all away as she alternates expertly between finesse and brute force, until a large metal hook grabs her by the throat and she gets pulled backward by its chain. The skeleton pulling on the chain reels her in hand over fist, dragging her bodily over the mud and ichor-soaked ground while she struggles against the hook in her throat. Finally, she gets a foot underneath herself and pushes off the ground, taking flight once more. The horde had thinned out as she was pulled away from what had become the main fray and could now safely fly out of reach. With her free hand, she keeps the chain gripped tight, and when it pulls taut, the skeleton on the other end is lifted off the ground, now trailing after her. She climbs a hundred feet, safely out of reach of Tarbafon's ground forces, before stopping all at once. The sudden stop brings a weightlessness to the hook in her throat, and before it gets pulled down once more, she pulls it free, ignoring the unpleasant feeling of removing the filthy steel from within her flesh. She lets go of the chain and lets the skeleton plummet, back to the ground. Tarbafan was waiting. He floats in place, smirking his ugly smirk, no doubt enjoying the sight of her scrambling on the ground against his forces. He opens his mouth with a new taunt fresh upon his cracked, dead lips. But with a spin and a sharp movement, Arasni flings her rapier directly at him. I do enjoy. <laughs> the rapier's hilt protrudes out of Tarbafan's mouth, and behind him, we see the dazzling blade impaled through the back of his skull. A soft magical pop, and Arasni disappears and reappears directly in front of him, her hand already gripped on her hilt as it quivers at the end of Tarbafan's simmering rage. What we can see of his face behind the rapier's bell guard contorts with anger, even as Arasni giggles with satisfaction. <laughs> That's such a good look for you. She unsheaths the rapier out of his mouth, relishing the moment. Once unobstructed, Tarbafan bares his teeth in a low growl before uttering an incantation. His hands begin to glow, but Arasni thrusts her rapier again, this time through the bottom of his chin and out the top of his head. He loses the spell, appearing angrier than ever. She pulls the sword out again, and this time, Tarbafan flees. Arasni gives chase, the two mages zooming through the air. He skims between the crenellated towers of Renchurch, soars through the air, and brushes over jagged cliffs, but can't shake Arasni as she slowly narrows in on her quarry. He starts slowing down as the two clear a cliff edge, leaving the monstrous hordes far beneath them. He rounds a bend in the cliff and comes to a halt as he finds himself at a dead end. He turns around just as Arasni arrives, stopping a dozen feet away. She points a finger at his forehead. I must say, not your proudest moment. And a beam of green energy fires from her outstretched finger, just before it reaches the Whispering Tyrant, though. His sneer of anger curls into a grin. The beam connects and his entire body vaporizes. No, too easy. Razni looks around. The real one must be hidden somewhere. Must have arranged this bait and switch even back while she was contending with his ground forces. Do you know what your most charming quality is? Tarbafan appears high in the air above her, a wild, manic grin splitting his face as he gazes down at her. 
The fact that you actually believe you stood a chance against me. A swish, an almost imperceptible magical whisper. Erasne looks down in its direction. The top of the cliff, the one she had thought she was hovering about 50 feet above. Another illusion parted with a flourish, and she was merely five feet above the rocky surface, and resting on the rock previously hidden by the illusion were three dormant fireballs. Three pea-sized balls of barely contained destruction. In the moment she takes in the trap she had stumbled into, they explode. Erasne braces, shields her face with her arms, but the triple inferno scorches her flesh, burning away at her dwindling defenses. The rocks beneath her break apart, leaving a bed of rubble where smooth stone had been. The air is red with fire, blinding her in the moments of eruption. Not just once. The curtain of red parts, and Erasne has no time to react to the mountain-sized boulders careening through the air at impossible speeds before colliding into each other, sandwiching her in the middle as dirt and boulders explode in all directions at the titanic impact. But twice... The air is thick with the haze of dust and pebbles floating on the eddies. The incredible energy of this fight. Erasne can't see Tarbafon anymore. She can't see the ground beneath her, past the dirt cloud. She was barely hanging on. She can feel her body straining to hold itself together. She can't feel the pain, but she can feel her fluidity of movement drop, her broken ribs stabbing her from the inside, her head leaking the black ichor holding her on death in check. That you thought my magical and intellectual superiority could be challenged by anyone, let alone the whimpering attack dog of the Knights of Ozum, the Harlot Queen of Geb. This was bad. Tarbafon had the upper hand from every angle. Arasni was reaching the limits of her physical body and her magical endurance. It wasn't too late to run. She had enough magic left to guarantee her escape and hide herself again. She reached into her drained well of magic and brushed against her reserves. It was comforting just to know that it was still there, just like Uhtred with his silly scimitar, or Randolph with Thalias, or... No, retreating wasn't an option. Those brave mortals were counting on her to do this. Maybe she was about to fail, but she would not fail them. No more running. No more hiding. She grabs her shoulder, squeezes, and jerks her arm back into its socket before rising up out of the thinning cloud of dirt. She readied her magic for the right moment. But Tarbafan was ready for her. One moment she saw him, floating in the air a few hundred feet above and away. She grabbed hold of her magic, but the next moment, he was behind her. The tip of his finger pressed against the back of her skull, and an image burned into the air from his movement as if stopping time. She could see the trace of spells cast on himself from a distance before moving into his new position and starting time again, perfectly poised for his checkmate. She had one play. One desperate move to make before he released his spell. Erasne spreads her arms wide, palms out, and a lens closes around her and Tarbafan. A lens almost undetectable, but for the faintest muting of colors. They fall 
60 feet to the ground, all magic, all spells suppressed. She lands with a hard thud, and her vision flickers once as her body nearly loses its grip upon impact. For a moment, they both lay in a heap on top of each other. Tarbafan seems bewildered at his inability to use magic. It's the faintest of hesitations that she needs as she stands up, and as he scrambles to follow, she strikes him across the jaw with her closed fist. It's not enough, though. Not nearly enough. He glares at her before whirling around. The anti-magic field is small, only a 20-foot bubble, 10 feet on either side of her. He could easily get out and regain the use of his powers. It would be the end of the battle. It would be his victory. No. She grabs his arm at the elbow, yanks up, and kicks the back of his leg. Tarbafan falls to one knee, and with a shimmer of steel and one mighty thrust, Arasni impales her rapier through his prone leg, right between the bones, pinning him to the ground. He twists around, reaching for the sword hilt, but Arasni kicks his arm away and throws another punch at the side of his head. He pauses, taking in the absurdity, before looking up at Arasni with a sneer. So, you're going to bludgeon me to my destruction like a common fighter, is that it, Erasni? Erasni tightens her fist as she winds it back. Sweetie, I can think of no end more fitting. And she lets another punch fly, and another. She deflects another attempt to grab her sword, and lands another punch. Again, and again. Crack! 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 The sound echoes off the cliff walls around them. Hold the line! Over and over, Tarbafan's efforts grow more and more desperate as his rage grows more and more as Arasni continues to pummel the Whispering Tyrant closer and closer to his destruction until... Crack! Hold the line! Crack! Hold the line! Snap! His jaw is dislocated. He howls in rage and frustration, while Arasni grins behind her own broken face. She only gets one more punch, though, before Tarbafan, instead of going for the sword again, grabs his own horned helm and throws it out in front of him. We watch as it hurtles through the air, and before touching the ground, a 30-foot-long black dragon appears, the horns of the helmet becoming those of the dragon. Acid drips from its wings as they flare out, carrying the creature through the air before it swoops back toward Erasne. She has only enough time to evade. She jumps back away from the dragon's acidic bite, leaving Tarbafan pinned by her rapier but no longer in the anti-magic field. As she watches him struggle with freeing himself from his compromised position, Erasne has to act quickly. She suppresses the field, returning her own magic back to her, even while the dragon continues to force her back with more snaps of its fangs, slams of its claws, and swipes of its enormous tail. Tarbafan finally yanks his leg free of the sword and stands up, whirling around to face her. He raises a pointed finger at her, ready to finish the job, but the spell fizzles in a small puff of green smoke. With yet another roar of anger, he grabs his dislocated jaw and jerks it roughly back into place, just as the black dragon rears its head back, preparing to engulf her in a deadly gout of acidic breath. But Erasne holds her hands up, and a deep red disc appears just above the dragon, and out of the disc plummets an enormous creature landing squarely on top of the dragon. 
the creature straightens up and we behold an amalgamation of stone and plant matter in the form of a powerfully built humanoid. Water perpetually pours down its wide-brimmed rice hat, and it wields a full-sized tree as if it were a quarterstaff. The dragon roars at the new combatant, and the two titanic creatures lunge at each other. The nearby rock walls sizzle as acidic spit sprays from the dragon's mouth from a well-aimed whack of Arasne's titan's weaponized tree. The dragon's front claws scramble up the titan's front, showering the ground with shavings of stone and bark from the deep, corrosive gouges. The titan grabs the dragon by the throat and hurls it away, but the dragon's hooked appendages keep a tight grip, and the two monsters go tumbling to the side. As the way is cleared, Arasni can see Tarbafon quaking with rage, his dull gray scalp visible now without his imposing horned helm leaves far less impressive a visage, almost even something shameful to look upon. Arasni watches him with apprehension, waiting for his next move, her greatest effort to destroy him interrupted by the emergence of that dragon. He would surely never allow her another opportunity like that. Her hopes of victory seemed truly out of reach now. But as we wait and watch, he doesn't go on the attack. Instead, merely watching back, it dawns on Arasni that, possibly, he was scared of re-engaging, or at least wary, taking time to calculate his options. She had shaken him, given him a taste of powerlessness, bended to his power but refused to be broken by it. It dawns on her that this was a position he hadn't been in in perhaps millennia. Though she was herself standing just before the cusp of oblivion, he seemed to be unsure of her remaining resolve. Meanwhile, the air buffets as the dragon flaps its enormous wings, getting itself airborne, but Erasne's titan knocks it back to the ground with an almighty chop from its tree-sized staff that sends an echoing crack up and down the craggy terrain. Tarbafon glances back at this titanic struggle with a sneer. Then, with one final glare and an enraged growl at Arasni, he takes off, flying back toward the open valley that holds Renchurch and his forces. Arasni's satisfaction at watching his retreat is overshadowed by her dread of facing his reinforcements in her condition. She takes off after him, but it's her titan who reaches him first and swings its enormous tree staff at him. Instead of the Whispering Tyrant, though, the tree makes contact with his dragon, who catches the tree in its strong, acidic jaws. A moment of sizzling cracks, and the tree shatters under the corrosive bite. The dragon pushes its advantage and plows into the dragon, horns first, starting yet another ground-shaking skirmish. Arasni gains on Tarbafon and passes over the two wrestling monsters, just as they all re-emerge from the rocky cliffs, back into the Valley of Renchurch. Tarbafon glances back and sees her catching up. With another growl of frustration, he fires three rays of black, inky flames at her. She zips around the first two with several graceful twirls and flings the third to the side with a flick of her rapier. Casting his spell cost him time, and after evading, Erasne is able to halt directly in front of Tarbafon, who is forced to also stop. Behind tangled hair, bulging eyes, and partially exposed skull, Erasne sends a truly intimidating gaze, subsidized by the same wounds Tarbafon had delivered to her. And where do you think you're going? 
Tarbaphon's eyes quiver with anger as he reels from his sudden stop, his teeth grind with fury, composure forgotten. But then it returns, as his scowl widens into a toothy grin. What's the point of destroying you with no witnesses when I have a fully captivated audience waiting for the grand finale? He breaks away, flying up and back. As Erasne prepares to follow, though, she spots the destructive gout of acid breath at the last moment and flies downward to avoid the surprise attack from the Black Dragon, even as it continues to contend with her titan on the ground. As she evades, Tarbaphon repositions and fires a green ray of energy down at her. Without time to think, Erasne twirls in the air and pushes off of nothingness, avoiding the beam by a hair's breadth as she spins up and out, closing with him once more, but this time with a dazzling thrust of her rapier. Tarbaphon brings his arms up and catches the dazzling steel on his bracers in a grand spray of red and black sparks. From above her blade and below his outstretched arms, their eyes lock once more. Sounds to me like you're stalling. Through her peripherals, Erasne spots a golden glimmer of light cresting the hill beyond Renchurch. The Knights of Ozum were at their doorstep. Had her allies failed to turn them back? No, the mass of steel and horses wasn't moving. They must be locked in negotiations. They were still a safe distance from the battle, but that could change at any moment. Tarbaphon bares his teeth in annoyance as they pull back from their exchange. You really are the most insufferable bitch I have ever had the displeasure of exterminating more than once. He breaks away again, and Erasne gives pursuit again. Over and over, they clash and part as the two liches dart through the air, slowly drawing ever closer back to Renchurch. Tarbaphon has no doubt noticed the presence of the knights as well, but his attention was kept wisely on her as she pressed ever on in her assault. You're getting a little ahead of yourself. Aridin defeated you at Lake and Carthen when you were still mortal. And now, at your most powerful, you are about to lose again to his discarded, forgotten Herald. Though their monstrous allies continue to clash, the two liches soon travel beyond the reach of the clashing dragon and titan. Tarbaphon grins arrogantly between bouts. Your grasp of the situation is tenuous at best. Did you really think this little suicide mission of yours was so clever as to be my own defeat? He sends a pea-sized ball of fire at Erasne, but before it can erupt on top of her, she slices it in half with her rapier, and with a twirl of steel, sends the two broken halves careening back at him. I think you're not as clever as you think you are. Tarbaphon catches the two halves of his own fireball in each hand, and with a manic scowl of fury, hurls them downward in a fit of rage, where each half explodes against the fractured ground. With eyes wide and mouth frothing, the Whispering Tyrant stabs a prideful finger into his own chest. I am the most brilliant mage to ever walk among these pathetic, drooling mortals. Their very history betrays their ignorance. Aridin defeated me at Lake and Carthen because I allowed it, because my path to lichdom demanded my own death at the hands of a god. It was my ingenuity that transformed this divine tumor in my hand into the deadliest weapon in all of Galarian. I am but a wave of my hand, 
from annihilating you and your dear Knights of Ozum, and soon I will have everything I need to mass-produce more shards, giving myself unfettered use of my super weapon. This world will burn, and from its ashes will rise my new dynasty of the dead. The realization hits her like a slap to the face. The shards, they were pieces of the shattered shield of Arnesand. Before that, they were the shield of Aridin. Aridin's shield, the one he made untold lifetimes ago, when she was still just a mortal woman. If Tarbafan knew about its source, could he manufacture new shards in the same way? Potent as the Radiant Fire was, it was limited by its finite uses. If he could remove that limit, well, the Inner Sea would be but the Whispering Tyrant's first stop before blasting apart all of Galarian. It was a big if, though, even for him. You're bluffing. His eyes widen in a manic confidence that conjured in Arasni the memory of her skin crawling. Do you think so? She pushes those memories back. She had to keep him on his heels. I guess it doesn't really matter. You can't get far away enough to use the Radiant Fire without destroying yourself. I've turned your own witch gates against you, and now you're a dead man. If she was expecting this to knock his bravado down, though, Erasne was dismayed to see the opposite, as Tarbifan's grin somehow grows even wider, nearly threatening to rip his face in half. Oh, my dear Erasne. Dead men are my specialty. He breaks off again, floating toward Renchurch, though his new haunting confidence and her growing dread. Razni can't help this time but let him, as if she needed to hear what he said next. She follows, and the two are once again floating above the general vicinity of the fortress monastery. The shifting glimmer of gold and the very faint call of a horn of retreat at least gives her reassurance that her allies had succeeded in turning the Knights of Ozen back. But she keeps her attention on Tarbafan. She needed to know if he was bluffing. The Lich spreads his arms in a grand boast. Did you really think that I would leave such a glaring flaw in my own creation? That you could, in your blind confidence, simply send some hopeful initiates into my domain and cut me off with impunity, with but the flip of a switch. I can fully shut the witch gates down remotely from anywhere in Virlich. I already have, before returning to Gallowspire and recalibrating them myself. But first, I believe I owe you a dead man? How about several thousand? And before Razni can even take in his ominous question, Tarbafan holds his closed fist up to eye level before opening his hand, palm out, and letting a tiny wooden shard tumble down toward the grounds of Renchurch, a hundred feet below. Razni's eyes grow wide as they flash blue for just a moment, and we can suddenly see things as she does. A thrumming green light, flickering and growing, projected from that tiny wooden shard as it falls toward the ground, and in her head a magical echo like an elastic band, 
ringing out louder and louder, matching the green flashes of light. In a swirl of smoke, Tarbafan, still grinning widely, vanishes. Beyond Arasni's notice, we can see about a quarter of his forces at Renchurch, as well as the distant dragon, likewise vanish. Arasni whirls around, and though distant, we can see her allies, watching from atop the hill that the Knights of Ozum once stood upon. Were they far enough? Impossible to know for sure, but her gut told her no. She has but a moment to act, even as the radiant fire begins to erupt from the tiny wooden shard, splitting apart the ground at the base of Renchurch and utterly consuming the stone fortress. She reaches deep into her magical reserves, with hardly anything to spare. She wraps them each up in an arcane cocoon. Their job was not done yet, after all. If Tarbafan was preparing to make new shards, there was only one place in all of Galarian who was focusing those efforts. Even as the Radiant Fire's blast overtook her, and she could feel her body being torn apart, with all of her remaining strength, she hurls the cocoon mortals through space, away from the danger and toward their destiny, with the only message she has time to craft. Seek the Kamara. And that was it. That was everything she could do. With no power remaining, no options remaining, no will remaining, Razni bathes in the absolute destruction of the Radiant Fire, unsure if she even had yet a physical form to be destroyed. There was no pain, no discomfort, just the sheer, momentary bliss of nothingness. Would she reawaken back in Geb again, imprisoned? Would she ever awaken at all? The modifications to her body and soul remained. It was a strange feeling, then as her thoughts slowly grew ever darker. She found herself tumbling toward a precipice of unknown. Each thought could be her last, and it scared her. She smiles, well, as much as a formless consciousness can smile. Freedom through oblivion, or renewed, empowered enslavement. Yet the last thought we can grasp before the scene slips away is of those stubborn, pig-headed adventures she had just spent everything to save. And the blinding light fades, ever so slowly, until it's a mere ball of light, our eyes adjust, and we see the ball of light is the sun, eclipsed by a dense canopy of lush trees, a rush of wind, and a heavy pop, and those pig-headed adventures appear before us, looking around with growing confusion. A wide, sparkling river flows past them, just as stones throw away, and tropical birds call out from out of sight. As they take in their surroundings, we rise into the air for a better vantage point. Above the tree line, we can see the river flow past a distant city, filled with tall stone buildings and enormous flowers. We keep rising, and far beyond the city, we can just barely see another structure peeking out through the tree line a large stepped pyramid. Everything is bleached from our vision as the sky grows too bright to see, and as it dims again, the landscape is replaced by large dark letters forming the title screen. Book 5, Born by the Sun's Grace.